this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Mura, her autobiography, written by Mura Limpany with Margot Strickland and published in 1991 by Peter Owens. Chapter 6 Mrs. Bennett Corn, New York Paris was liberated in the spring of 1945, and five weeks later Colin and I were on our way to the French capital, where, under the auspices of the British Council, I was to play the Roththorne Piano Concerto No. 1, a work I learned for the occasion, and again the Cacciatorian, under the baton of Sir Adrian Bull, with the Orchestre du Conservatoire. The Germans had occupied every hotel in Paris, and had not long left, so these were virtually uninhabitable. Where were we to stay? We were advised we would be quartered with a family. The brother occupied the first floor, his sister the second. Colin and I were guests of the brother and his wife, Alexis and Suzanne Rateau. There was no fuel, there were no cars, no petrol, and little food or drink. Gunfire could still be heard in the distance at night. The war was not yet over. But Paris was in a state of high excitement, and, despite the privations, my hostess was determined to make the most of the occasion of my concert. Dressed in a stunning couture gown, festooned with long-hidden family jewels, Suzanne Rateau clambered behind her husband, wearing white tie and tails astride his motorcycle, and off they went to the Salle, the Théâtre des Champs-Élysées, where I was to play Rothorn's Piano Concerto No. 1. It was an important and impressive event. The French musicologists were very keen on Rothorn, comparing him favorably with Benjamin Britten. The history of the theatre enthralled me. Here had taken place the incredible first performance of Stravinsky's ballet Le Sacre du Printemps, which had caused riots. Its beautiful allegorical frescoes, its magical lights, the ranked tiers of seats imbued with musical legend made it thrilling. Now I was adding another chapter to its history. I was English, yet I had been chosen to play at this time in Paris, when French patriotic feeling was at its height. After the concert, Colin and I attended a dinner party in my honor at which I found myself seated next to a charming man. "'I have a couture house,' he told me. "'Would you like to come and see me and choose a model for your next concert?' "'How gorgeous!' I exclaimed. "'My name is Robert Ritchie. Nina is my mother.' To my husband across the dinner table I called above the hubbub of conversation. Darling, monsieur is Madame Nina Ricci. Everyone laughed. The next day we went to the salon, where I chose a beautiful dress, white organza encrusted with black guipure lace and embroidery, very jeune fille, and I vowed I would wear it when I made my debut in the United States. 
The long years of the war had prevented this extension of my career, but it had not harmed me, for I had gained so much in experience from playing under all sorts of conditions and learning unusual works. I adored the Ricci style and went back again and again to the salon, usually to choose a model in a sale, as they were far too expensive, and I could never buy them then and there. Robert considerately arranged for me to pay for them in installments. There was one of black velvet, with shell paillettes embroidered all over the skirt. It was so lovely, and when I first saw it I was horrified by the price. Robert refused to sell it to anyone else. "'It's yours,' he told me. "'I still have this dress and cannot part with it. "'It has been let down and out several times, "'and even had pieces let in, and I still love to wear it. "'Another Ricci gown I wore was made from yellow lace "'encrusted with sequins with a cape of lime-green satin. "'This, too, Robert absolutely declined to sell to anyone else.' I played at the proms the year the war ended, the summer of 1945. The Czechs were planning the Prague International Festival, the first international music festival to take place after hostilities ceased in 1946. I was asked for. I was thrilled to accept this singular honor and excited at the prospect of meeting the foreign musicians who were also going to appear. Charles Munch, Jeanette Neveu, Nicole Henriot, these last two still in their twenties. I had already played with Munch at one of the Concerts du Conservatoire in Paris. The young Czech pianist, Rudolf Fakushny, was to be the chief soloist at the festival Prague Spring. We met at an Anglo-Czech gathering in London hosted by Sir Cecile Parot, the diplomat and Czech scholar. Fakushny had been the great friend and inspiration of the composer Martineau. Both had been in Paris in the twenties and thirties. Fakushny, sponsored by Dr. Jan Mazarek, had grown to great prominence. Martineau had composed his second piano concerto for Fakushny, premiered at Prague in 1935 before both composer and pianist were blacklisted by the Nazis. Fukushni had managed to escape to America, where he had spent the war years in safe exile, and now a jubilant reunion was planned between Fukushni and Martineau. The pianist arrived from America just twenty-four hours before the reception, exhausted, but had spent the entire day in the recording studios. Later that evening he was due to broadcast a solo recital for the BBC. He was greeted like a hero by his compatriots at the party, generously talking to everyone with the greatest ease. Pressed to play, he gave the guests an impromptu recital of Czech folk music, and I admired his playing enormously, especially his lovely soft tone and touch. In conversation, I found him simple and natural. The British Council, who were sponsoring the British contingent, asked me to play a British work in Prague. In addition to the John Ireland Piano Concerto, I decided to play the Benjamin Dale Sonata. Both these works had been important in my life. Bach and Ravel were also included in my program. Among my colleagues also going to Prague were Sir Adrian Bull and the Aeolian Quartet, 
and Leon Gusens, considered by many to be the greatest oboe player in the world, a charming, courtly companion. On the morning of 20 May, I left Colin at home at Whiteacre before 8 o'clock to go to London for the rendezvous at St. James Street, where we assembled to await the coach that was to take us to Croydon Airport. We were all in high spirits. The war was over, and although there was still food and clothes rationing, and utility furniture was all that could be bought, the festival we were about to help launch in Czechoslovakia seemed to herald a brighter future for the world in Europe. The sun was shining in London, and we felt so gay. At Croydon we all trooped up the steps into the transport command aircraft to be handed a packet of sandwiches, each to eat on the journey. What was in those sandwiches I shall never know, but they were perfectly horrible and inedible. The infamous snook, perhaps, a substitute fish for the starving war workers, or spam, or corned beef, or reconstituted egg, this was the only refreshment or sustenance offered us. But though our spirits were a little dashed, we talked and laughed, and looked forward to our arrival in Czechoslovakia. Four hours later, at three o'clock, the aircraft landed at Prague Airport, and after the formal presentations, to the President of Czechoslovakia, Dr. Benes, and the Foreign Minister, Dr. Mazarek, we were taken to our hotel, where straight away we ordered tea. We were gaspingly thirsty and very hungry, having eaten and drunk nothing at all since breakfast in our own homes many hours earlier. The smiling Czech waiter at the hotel looked crestfallen and shook his head. There was no tea whatsoever in Prague, he told us regretfully, but as a very great favor he would bring us some real coffee. Real coffee! None of us could remember what real coffee was like. It had been unobtainable throughout the war years. When the silver tray arrived, carried with great ceremony by the waiter, and bearing a silver coffee pot and porcelain cups and saucers, the coffee was poured out for us, and we thankfully seized our cups and sipped the liquid. It was absolutely revolting, Erzat's coffee. So off we trooped upstairs to change in our rooms with yawningly empty stomachs. Dinner was promised to follow before we went to hear Ferkushni play. Dinner proved to be a quick snack, so we were all still hungry but could not complain as we were taken on at once to the concert hall for the inaugural concert. Ferkushni was to play Martineau's second piano concerto, whose melodic line derived from Moravian folk music, eleven years after its first performance. The atmosphere was already electric when news came that Martineau had had a serious accident and was unable to be present. Czechoslovakia, a landlocked country which produced amazing genius, had emerged from the oppressive years of occupation with an extraordinary buoyancy. The ovation accorded their young pianist before he had played even one note was stupendous. No one can imagine the emotion and euphoria he evoked in the audience. At the end of the concert, the audience could not be contained. They all mounted the platform and crowded round him as he sat at the piano, clamoring for an encore, so there was hardly room for him to move his arms. He played one, then two, then three encores, and still the audience was insatiable. 
He played three more encores, and then the yawning attendants, desperate to go home, put out the lights. Frakushni played a seventh encore. Still, the audience would not leave the stage, let alone the hall, so the attendants pushed their way through the throng and tried to close down the piano. But the audience began to scuffle with the attendants, refusing to let the piano lid be lowered, and Frakushni played an eighth encore in semi-darkness, in a rapt silence from audience and attendants alike. I was myself most affected by this terrific demonstration of affection by the crowd for their fellow countrymen. The party following the concert was hosted by the young, brilliant, popular Kubelik and his wife, not only a charming hostess, but a fine violinist herself. Kubelik's father, the famous violinist Jan Kubelik, had been the son of a Czech gardener, and known in his time as having earned more money than any other living soloist, invested in beautiful castles, which he restored to their original grandeur. The British concerts were to follow, conducted by Sir Adrian Boo. Under his baton I was to play the John Ireland Piano Concerto. My solo recital was to follow two days later. Whether it was malnutrition added to excitement and emotion, I do not know, but the day after I had played the John Ireland I woke up in the hotel feeling ill and with a sore throat. The doctor was summoned and took my temperature. It was 101 and tonsillitis was diagnosed. The next evening I was due to give my solo recital, and I would not, could not cancel it. I was dosed up and stayed in bed. From my hotel window my feverish eyes had, for the first time since my arrival in Prague, an opportunity to contemplate the view. The morning sun lit up with extraordinary clarity the red and gold and green roofscape of domes and spires, while beyond my eyes were led to hills clouded with pink and white may blossom. Prague had a tangible ambience of courage and genius and holiness. One could feel it. I felt really ill, but in the late afternoon I began to get ready for my recital. I had chosen to wear a simple, draped, white jersey dress. For the first half of my program I had selected a mixture of classics, ending with the brilliant Ravel Toccata, which closes Le Tombeau de Coupera. When I finished, I was bathed in perspiration, and could hardly totter off the stage to the tumultuous applause. I could see Raphael Kubelek, tall and beautiful, standing in the wings, clapping away. In England it is not usual for artists to give encores, or extras, as they are called in the United States, during an interval. But the audience would not let me go. Kubelik pushed me, dazed as I was, back on the stage. Go on, he urged me excitedly. So, bemused with fever and the bright lights blinding my eyes, I sat down again at the piano and began to play the Chopin waltz in G-flat, a piece I knew backwards, which I could play in my sleep. So many hundreds of times had I played it. But I really was not ready, and did not quite know where I was. I should have been resting in my dressing-room, preparing for the second half of my program. To my horror I had a block, lost the chain, and could not think what came next in this all-too-familiar piece of music. I managed to play the next bit quite happily, 
Then the block came again, and by then I was terribly upset and hardly knew what I was doing. I finished as best I could and rushed off the stage, my head bowed in shame at what I had done to the artist's room. Kubelik came in, still clapping enthusiastically, to find me collapsed on the dressing table, my head in my arms, weeping uncontrollably, and crying, I'm finished, I'm finished, my career is finished. Kubelik exhorted me to go on again. The audience were still applauding, clamoring for my return. I wiped my face, powdered my nose, and stood up, and as I left the dressing room, I began humming the waltz to myself as I went. How does the ruddy thing go? I murmured exasperatedly. On the stage I bowed to the audience, then I sat down and played the Chopin waltz all over again, this time perfectly, to even greater applause. And the fifty-three-minute Dale Sonata I played also, without any mistakes. The next day at the hotel, despite my performance the previous night, my sore throat and temperature, I went to the hotel hairdresser. The young hairstylist greeted me with knowing laughter. "'You're not the little English girl who pretended to forget her Chopin last night, are you?' He and the other cognoscenti thought my only too real lapse of memory was a huge practical joke. The press alluded to Kubelik and myself as Raphael and the Angel on account of my white gown. After that I stayed in bed, only getting up to hear the Russians play. I could not possibly miss them, for Lev Oberin was to play the Kachaturian piano concerto. Kachaturian had dedicated this work to Oberin, a winner of the Russian Chopin competition and a superb teacher at the Moscow Conservatoire. Oberin and I had both recorded the piano concerto, and when we met after the concert, we embraced each other enthusiastically and agreed to exchange recordings of this masterpiece with which we had been so intimately connected. These two crucial visits overseas, to Paris and Prague, were the forerunners of innumerable cultural missions I went on for Britain. I was one of the first British pianists to tour the USSR after the war. It was my destiny to give the fantastic Cacciatorian Concerto its first performance in London, Paris, La Scala, Milan, Brussels, and Australia. In 1948, my agent at last arranged for me to make my debut in the United States. It was a continent I knew only from movies, and I eagerly looked forward to playing at the Town Hall, New York. My husband Colin had been to America and had not liked it. He announced that he would be unable to come with me, as he could not leave his business for so long. He knew I would have a very strenuous time, and also a nerve-wracking one, but I assured him I would be all right. For this vitally important trip, when I would be without Colin's support, I took along Edna, a very nice Englishwoman, to be my helpmate. The British Inland Revenue generously allowed the employment of such a person to count as expenses. Quite why, I never knew, but to my great sorrow all my little ducklings on the pond in the garden behind my cottage at Oxshot died that spring. I was told the water was stagnant. Someone had once said to me that the duck is a symbol of love and fidelity in China, and I felt this was an omen. However, I put this at the back of my mind as I prepared for my momentous journey. 
Colin and I practice regularly. I was 32 when I arrived in the United States, where I was met by a barrage of journalists and photographers who made a great fuss of me, apparently surprised that I should be young and not bad-looking. One of the blasé New York photographers called out at the press conference, "'Give us a leg picture!' "'I'm a concert pianist,' I protested, "'not a showgirl.' By then, the autumn of 1948, the new look created by Christian Dior was all the rage. The short, knee-length skirts of wartime were out, and the ensemble I was wearing was full-skirted and fell in generous folds to my ankles. However, I responded to the journalist's demand and raised my skirts to my knees. "'Lady!' exclaimed the pressman admiringly. "'Those ain't no piano legs, neither!' For my performance at the New York Town Hall, I duly wore my Nina Ricci dress. At the interval of the recital, Saul Hurok, who was presenting me, together with Agnes DeMille and her husband, Walter Prude, came round to the dressing room, and when the bell rang to warn me to be ready to go on stage again, I turned to Edna, my helpmate, and said, "'Oh, Edna, can I please have my bottle?' Walter Prude looked horrified and said in a shocked voice, you're not going to drink. No, no, Walter, I explained, laughing. My hot water bottle, for my hands. I do like to make sure my hands are warm before I play. If my hands are cold, the muscles will not work and respond properly. My heart is warm, too, if my hands are warm. During the war I had got into the habit of carrying a white fur muff in which I tucked my hands and a baby-sized hot water bottle as I walked the sometimes long distances between the dressing room and the stage, handing it to my helpmate or a stagehand in the wings before stepping out onto the platform. The next day, 25 November 1948, Noel Strauss wrote in the New York Times, the handsome, modest musician had once established herself as an artist of decided importance, both as technician and interpreter. Strauss went on to say he had never heard Ravel's toccata performed with such spontaneity or any comparable exquisiteness of tinting or finesse, an artist of keen insight and superb pianistic attainments. My program had consisted of Bach Busoni's Toccata in C Major, Mendelssohn's Variation Series, Chopin's Scherzo in C Sharp Minor, Brahms's Variations on a Theme of Paganini, Book Two, Interval, Ravel's Ondine and Toccata, Rachmaninoff's Preludes in D flat, G flat, and B flat, Liszt's Jeu d'eau à la Villa d'Este, Liszt's Polonaise in E major. At one of the private recitals, I was seated at the piano, having just played and not thinking of anything in particular, when a young man a little taller than myself, wearing horn-rimmed glasses behind which shone a pair of lively brown eyes, came up to me at the piano. "'Can I get you something to eat?' he asked. It was true I was hungry after my performance, and the food in America was marvellous after the years of privation in England during and after the war. I'm Bennett Corn, he told me, handing me a plate of excellent canapes. He worked in radio. 
we seem to have a great deal to talk about together, and as we left that party, a friend remarked to me, "'That young American is not going to forget you.' Nor did he. He quickly got in touch with me, and soon he was taking me out and showing me his New York, Central Park, the Bronx, the Statue of Liberty. It was a marvelous city, so vital, young and modern, as was my guide.' We dined and danced together every night till the early hours. Bennett adored all kinds of music and had a superb collection of records, classical and jazz. He also played the saxophone really well. He was so quick, so brilliant, with a darting, lively intelligence. It was said he was the best salesman in New York, working for a time on commercial radio. I fell head over heels in love with him, and he with me. Bennett had never been married. He lived alone in a large, one-room apartment, but was devoted to his parents and his sister, who were Orthodox Jews living in Brooklyn. He was born in Austria, and had arrived with his family in the United States when he was seven. He, too, was in love for the first time, and with a devout Roman Catholic Englishwoman who was married, and shortly returning to her husband. Any future for us seemed remote, but we agreed that I should ask Colin for a divorce and return as soon as possible to New York, where we would get married. On my return to England I was excited and keyed up. What had happened between Bennett and myself had seemed to be so natural. We were the same age, and I had immediately been attracted to him and he to me. I decided I must tell my husband that Bennett and I were in love and wished to spend the rest of our lives together and ask him to release me from our marriage as he had promised to do. Now suddenly everything had changed. On my first night home, Colin was faced no longer by a meek and retiring, obedient young wife, but with a mature woman passionately in love with a man of her own age. Afterwards we went to our separate rooms. The following morning I rose and breakfasted alone before going straight to the music room for my practice. It was lunchtime before I realized that I had seen no sign of Colin nor heard any sound from his room. I knocked on the door, but there was no reply. I went in. He was still in bed asleep, and when I touched him he did not stir. Very frightened, I called the doctor, who came at once and found that Colin had taken an overdose of sleeping tablets. An ambulance came and took him away. Deeply shocked by Colin's attempted suicide, I resolved that if he survived it was my duty to stay with him. I told Bennett that all was over between us, and Colin and I continued to live together. It must be said that, after the excitement, vitality, and interest of going to America, life in Surrey seemed somewhat flat. Inevitably, I felt a sense of anticlimax. Colin and I resumed our dual practicing for my recitals and concerts. But as I saw my women friends growing young families, I felt even more keenly the deprivation of children to call my own. Also, by the time the decade ended, my husband Colin, who had seemed not so very much older than myself at the time of our marriage ten years earlier, had aged a good deal. He was now seventy-two, while I was thirty-four. This uncomfortable situation went on for months. Bennett and I continued to correspond and to telephone each other. I even had a severe attack of dermatitis, 
which was diagnosed as psychosomatic, so great was my longing to be with Bennett. At last I could stand it no longer. Nine months later I told Colin I must go to Bennett, and Colin then agreed to a divorce. The painful negotiations were arranged with discretion, and to our relief, without publicity. Recklessly disregarding my own interests, I let Colin keep the house at Oxshott. Ironically, during this unhappy period of his life, Colin met a young woman in London who asked him why he looked so miserable. "'My wife has gone off with an American,' Colin told her, whereupon apparently the young woman proposed to him. That, at least, was Colin's story. In due course they married, and she bore him a son. As soon as I could arrange it, I flew to New York for what I thought would be my wedding.' On arrival, I found Bennett as magnetically attractive and charming as ever, and he felt the same way about me. But he had not found the courage to tell his mother he wanted to marry me. He was simply terrified his mother would veto the marriage. He was thirty-five, but still very much a mother's boy. It was quite a crisis for me, since I had crossed the Atlantic for him, having left my husband and divorced him. In consternation and rage I waited, day after day, as Bennett procrastinated, and finally I turned on him and told him I was returning to London. I meant what I said, and caught the next plane for a humiliating return. No sooner had I arrived back in London in a state of fury and despair at my rejection than the telephone rang. It was Bennett, all remorse, begging forgiveness, and confessing his realization that he adored me and could not live without me. In the summer of 1951, I was engaged to play at the proms. Two days before my concert, I met Bennett at the airport, and we were ecstatically reunited. We obtained a special license, and made all the arrangements to be married at Chelsea Registry Office the morning of the concert. Wearing white, with Bennett's white roses pinned to my bag, I drove to Chelsea in a white Rolls-Royce. Afterwards, I had to rush off to rehearsal at noon. As I went into the auditorium, the orchestra, conducted by none other than Basil Cameron, got to their feet and played the wedding march. After the first rehearsal, Bennett and I went to the Savoy for a wedding breakfast, but I could not drink any champagne, for I was playing that night. It was one of my favorite concerti, the Beethoven Fourth, and I played to a marvelous reception. I was ecstatically happy. Concert engagements in the north of England followed, and then Bennett and I flew to New York to start our married life together. When we reached New York, I asked Bennett how his mother had reacted to the news that he was coming to London to marry me. Bennett confessed that he had not dared to tell her. Fury possessed me. I raged at him, seized the telephone and put the receiver into his hand. "'Ring her and tell her at once,' I said." Bennett was literally trembling from head to foot as he dialed. I could hear his mother's voice quite clearly. I, "'I've got something to tell you, Mom,' he began shakily. "'I've married Mora.' "'Why didn't you tell me?' replied Mrs. Corn sweetly. "'I could have come over to London for the wedding. After all, you are my only son.' Bennett had been making his mother an allowance— 
which she now considered discontinuing, but I would not allow this. In fact, Mrs. Corn told her friends that she greatly approved of her daughter-in-law, because she herself went to Brooklyn once a month to give her, Mrs. Corn, her son's allowance. Soon I found myself caught up in a whirlwind life which revolved round Bennett's new job in television. At first we lived in his apartment. A grand piano, lots of records, and his saxophone filled the small space. Bennett was a dynamic man of diverse talents which he quickly channeled into numerous bewildering directions. He became president of thirteen television companies all over the United States. He said to me once, "'In America, we sell. In England, you just make things available.'" He had a brilliant mind and was the first man to bring culture to television in New York, and he bought programs from the BBC. It seemed that my longing for a child was at last to be realized. When I became pregnant, I joyfully prepared a lavish layette in the nursery of our new, larger apartment, and engaged a Scottish nanny who came over from England and settled in prior to the birth. Our first child, a son, was stillborn. My wretchedness no words can describe. The young Scottish nanny was so sweet to me. We begged her to stay on for a while. She was such a comfort before sending her off back to England. I became pregnant again, and all my hopes for a child were revived once more. This time twins were diagnosed, and there seemed no medical or physiological reason why they should not be carried full term. Inexplicably, however, twin boys were born prematurely at Christmas time, weighing two and a half pounds each, but they did not survive. I became pregnant for a third time, and at first all seemed to be going well. Then it appeared that the baby was very small, and I was warned by my obstetrician that I might not carry it full term. As the months passed, my hopes were raised, and at last a son was born at eight and a half months, but he was very small, weighing less than four pounds, and was put into an incubator immediately. We named him Charles Joseph after my brother, who had been killed in the war. Soon after the birth, Bennett and I went down to the nursery to see our son. Behind the glass wall of the incubator, he looked very frail. He was sleeping. Then suddenly, to my surprise and joy, he opened his eyes and looked straight at me. It was a moment I shall never forget. Thirty-five hours after his birth, he died. I cried a great deal after that. Back in our apartment I would talk about our son, with Bennett, and then one day I said to him, Let's not talk about the baby any more, because crying won't bring him back. I turned the page, and it was the end of the chapter. About this time we were invited by Sir Harold and Lady Mitchell to Jamaica, where I could recuperate and Bennett have a much-needed rest. Lady Mitchell was very touched by the concerned way Bennett looked at me, so affectionately, she said. Jamaica was lush and romantic, a paradise after the hectic New York schedule my husband kept. We were invited to dinner by Noel Coward. It was unforgettable. After dinner, Noel turned to me and said, in his inimitable staccato tone, Now, Mora, you and I are going to play my two pianos. He led me to one, and I sat down while he went to the other. Where's the music? I asked bewilderedly. I have no music, explained Noel succinctly. 
How are we going to play if we have no music? I demanded, laughing. I cannot read music, confessed Noel. I can't improvise, I admitted. Never mind, said Noel. We'll improvise together. So Noel strummed a few chords adorably, while I at the other piano stumbled along as best I could, trying to copy and follow him to the great entertainment of the rest of the party. Fyra Benenson, who as a little girl in St. Petersburg had been taught English by my mother, had established her own couture house in New York. Her dress designs were gorgeous, and she made several concert gowns for me. I had never given up playing the piano or practicing. When Kachaturian came to London to conduct a concert of his works, Oistrak was to play the Oistrak Violin Concerto, and I was engaged to play again the Piano Concerto. It was really frightening. Kachaturian was a tall, burly figure with smoldering black eyes and an expressive mouth. He was wonderful because he just took me along with him. He was so full of fire, of passion. He wrote on my music, like a tank approaching, like a tigress. It was absolutely fantastic. I never played the piano concerto so well again as with him, because he conducted it so powerfully, and he took me along with him. Bennett and I used to rent a house on Long Island to escape the pressures and heat of New York summers, and as I have always loved the country, I persuaded Bennett to let me find a holiday house and weekend retreat of our own on Long Island. To the agent I said, find me something unusual, something no one else wants. When we told Bennett's mother, she said, don't buy a cheap little house, buy a better house, it will increase in value. This was how we came to buy the Dolls House in Locust Valley, one hour and five minutes from New York. We called it the Dolls House because everything in it was tiny. Apart from one large bedroom, there were two other tiny bedrooms, two small kitchens, and two bathrooms. I had great fun arranging it. Behind the house, four acres of land went down to the sea, Mill Neck Bay. It was idyllic. We acquired a beautiful Siamese cat called Suki. We were a very happy and successful young couple with lots of friends in many spheres, including the United Nations, and there was no conflict in our separate worlds of classical music and television. Bennett's last boss was the brilliant John Kluge. Music was my work. I preferred to keep it quite apart from my personal and social life, and disliked talking about it. Very few of my friends, then and now, are musical or know anything at all about music. I had so many other interests that my friends did not have to be musical. At first I had been very shy of my husband's hectic lifestyle. His colleagues were all fast-talking, dynamic executives like himself, and I could not keep up with them at all. He would take me to parties, and I was completely tongue-tied. Bennett told me this was because all I could think of was myself and my shyness. He was an expert at public relations. Don't think of yourself, he told me. Think of the other person and say something of interest to that person straight away. It puts the onus on that person. That helped me enormously, and I completely lost my shyness, so that now I never mind going anywhere alone. Many of my women friends won't go anywhere without an escort, but this does not bother me at all. 
1956, I made an epic journey to Czechoslovakia again, and to Russia, to play with the Lenin Philharmonic Orchestra. I gave seven concerts, five in Moscow and two in Leningrad. How would my mother have reacted to the gray drabness and uniformity I found there? I had never been to Leningrad, the great city my mother and aunts had known and loved so well as St. Petersburg in the years before the First World War. It was still a beautiful city. In Moscow, at one of the social events, I was to meet Mr. Andrei Gromyko, and I wondered what on earth I could find to say to this great diplomat. He had been much loved at the United Nations. My husband's advice came in useful, for when we came face to face, I burst out, Oh, Mr. Gromyko, I think we have a lot of friends in common at the United Nations. At once we were talking away quite happily. Before leaving America for this trip, I had given a copy of the itinerary to Bennett, who was rather worried about my going behind the Iron Curtain, together with a list of the hotels where I was to stay. Bennett telephoned one of the hotels to be told I was not there, had not been there, and was not expected. This threw him into a panic. Where was I? Stories that came out of Russia activated his imagination. Had I been abducted? Had I been sent to Siberia? Was I in a Russian gaol? He kept on telephoning the hotel to be met by a stone wall of negativity. One of Bennett's close friends was the great advertising man Rosser Reeves. Also a brilliant chess player, Reeves had not long returned from Soviet Russia, where he had gone as president of a chess team. In Russia he had met Nikita Khrushchev, and the two men had hit it off tremendously well. So Bennett telephoned his friend for advice. I can't find Mora, he told Rosser Reeves. What shall I do? Send Khrushchev a telegram, was the reply. So Bennett worded a telegram to the effect that his wife, a soloist with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, must be located since he needed to contact her at once. This had an immediate result. Bennett learned that the hotels we were booked into had been changed, and I was staying at a different one. That night at supper after the concert, the last in Moscow, Adrian Bou, a formidably tall, balding figure with a moustache who at times reminded me of my first husband, Colin, and my uncle Bede, was cutting and sarcastic. "'Your husband has been in touch with Khrushchev,' he said severely. "'When we get to England, I suppose he'll be ringing the Queen next to find out where you are there?' I felt mortified." I put my head on my arms and wept bitterly into my plate. I felt I had disgraced my country. Then the representative from the Soviet Ministry of Culture touched me gently on the shoulder. "'Why are you crying?' he asked. I told him, "'My husband sent a telegram to Mr. Khrushchev,' I sobbed. "'He couldn't find me. I've let my country down. It's a terrible disgrace.' And I began to weep again. "'Wipe your tears away.' he counseled me, smiling. "'You have such pretty eyes.' I stopped crying and gazed at this kindly communist. "'We Russians understand love. Your husband loves you and was trying to find you, that's all.' I got on wonderfully with the Russians and wondered again if I had any Russian blood. After all, my Austrian great-grandfather had lived not far from the Russian border.' 
Another thought struck me. Had my mother been good in Leningrad all those years ago before her marriage? I had not inherited the long, straight Wellington nose my brothers possessed, but a short nose, a Russian nose, so I had been told. But I had the Johnston eyes, and I remembered that I had been born a year after my parents married. I decided I was tired of being pigeonholed as a virtuoso. I went for some lessons to Edward Steuermann, that marvelous musician who was a pupil of Schoenberg, and gave all the first performances of Schoenberg's music. His was a completely different approach from Matai. He was a tremendous brain, a great stickler for what was written, Germanic and classical. "'You never know a piece till you come back to it the third time,' Matai had said. I used to get very depressed when I could not do what I wanted to do, even though I practiced and practiced, and inexplicably a few months later I would return to the same piece to find the difficulties had disappeared. A psychologist explained to me that the work I had done had been absorbed into the subconscious, and I could now play the piece as I wished quite effortlessly. With Edward Steuermann I worked on Beethoven's Emperor Concerto. Steuermann wanted me to play the six short pieces from Schoenberg's Opus 19. Feeling it essential that I should understand their theoretical basis, he offered a detailed explanation of their motivic and atonal construction, their dependence on hexachordal relationships. This meant little or nothing to me from a musical standpoint. Steuermann saw that I was puzzled, and finally advised me, Mura, when you go home and work on these, play them as though they were Rachmaninoff. I took his advice, that is, I tried to make them very musical and melodious, and phrased them as Matai had taught me. When I came back and played them to Steuermann, he was absolutely thrilled. Don't change them, it's fine, he said. So I played them at my recital the following year, and they were received so enthusiastically they were almost more successful than anything else in my repertoire. In 1956 I went to play in Prague. Although I was married to an American, I still retained my British citizenship and passport, but I had a green card, a so-called alien's resident card. I broke my journey to play at the Royal Festival Hall in a charity concert in aid of the Kathleen Ferrier Appeal. To my surprise, on arrival at Prague, I found picture postcards of myself on sale in all the shops, reproducing a photograph taken especially for my earlier visit. On my return to New York, I received a severe grilling by the U.S. immigration authorities. What countries had I been to? Czechoslovakia, I replied, and at once was regarded with great suspicion. It seemed I had gone there without the permission of the U.S. State Department. Fruitlessly I pointed out that I was a British subject, and that it had all been arranged by my agent, Ibs and Tillett. The United States had had nothing to do with it. "'Lady, you're in trouble,' I was told succinctly. I feared I would be sent back to England at once and not allowed to go to my own home in New York. "'Wait,' ordered the officer." I waited and waited and waited, and at last was instructed to attend the immigration office between 8 and 9 a.m. in a few days' time to be interrogated by a security officer. 
Was I about to be sent to Ellis Island? In the meantime, the New York Times came out, and there was my photograph with Bennett on the front page beneath the headline and report of the great success Maura Limpany had had behind the Iron Curtain as a cultural ambassadress. I spent the whole day waiting in an office with lots of other people. I sat there from the hour of my arrival at 8 a.m., and by 4 p.m. I was bored and angry at having my time wasted. I had concerts to practice for, my household to attend to, my husband to be reunited with. Could I be seen now? I pleaded. I was directed to a cubicle and sat before a desk, behind which sat the interrogating officer. Where have you been? he demanded. Prague. Where did you stay? The British Embassy. How long for? Two weeks, on and off. Where else did you go? Other towns outside Prague. Did you speak to or see any Czechs? Of course. What did you speak about? he demanded sternly. Well, at a dinner party I sat next to a charming Czech. What did we speak about? I paused. We spoke about love. My interrogator sat up. You spoke to a communist about love? He shouted furiously. What else would a man and a woman speak about at a dinner party? I asked innocently. My interrogator stood up and glared at me. I must telephone Washington at once. He left the cubicle and I could hear him repeating our conversation down the telephone. Then he returned, sat down, and glared again at me. You can go, he ordered. All these years my father and mother had lived somewhat separate lives. My mother had lived on at Rosemont in Yelverton, her lively mind active to the end. She was teaching herself Hungarian when she died, to be buried in Plymouth. The house was bequeathed to her brothers, with the proviso that my father be allowed to live in it for the rest of his life. This was because my mother felt she must repay all the help her brothers had given her particularly concerning her son's education. So my father lived on at Rosemont in his retirement. He was quite unchanged, and the stories told of him were legion. He was as upright in his bearing as ever, and still as charming. He lived in one room in the house, let out the rest as bedsitters, and every day, immaculately dressed, strolled to the local hotel for lunch, where he was a great attraction as a raconteur. Once he believed he had won the pools, ordered champagne for all the habitués of the hotel, only to discover later that he had scored one point too little, and had not won at all. He was quite good-humoured about it. He still played golf and tennis, although he was in his late seventies. His devoted friends, Sylvia and Don Witz, played with him, drove him about, and he spent every Christmas and Easter with them and their children. They lived only four minutes' walk from Rosemont. Sylvia and Don were a public-spirited couple. She was a magistrate, chairman of the district council, and president of the Yelverton Women's Institute, while Don was chairman and finance director of the Royal Horticultural Society. Captain Johnston, Johnny, as my father was known, was a keen sportsman, and regularly umpired local cricket matches. Sylvia would cook cottage pies he could heat up in his baby-belling cooker. They went to point-to-points together at Newton Abbott, and my father, a distinguished soldierly figure in blazer or tweeds, smoking Erin Moore in a briar pipe, 
was well known all over North Devon. He loved animals, and once found an owl with a broken wing, nursed it back to health, digging worms for it every day, and building a small cage for it outside the back door of Rosemont. He would go out walking, the owl perched on his shoulder. When it was well enough to fly, he set it free. Once at a convivial lunchtime session at the Rick Hotel, my father met a man who had that morning with a spinner caught a ten-pound salmon in the Burrader Reservoir. Nothing would deter my father. He called for a taxi to take him to Tavistock, bought a spinner in the fishing tackle shop, and on he went in the taxi to the reservoir, where, fortunately, he asked the taxi driver to wait for him. My father promptly fell into the reservoir and had to be rescued by the taxi driver. When he was in his late seventies, I arranged for my father to travel from Southampton on the Queen Mary to stay with us in New York. I sent him his ticket and plenty of cash to spend. Unfortunately, there was a dock strike at the time, and so the passengers were instructed to make their way to Liverpool. On arrival at Liverpool, my father boarded the ship and found his cabin, which he was to share with another passenger. I shall never know the truth of what happened. Tired after his unexpected journey to Liverpool, my father fell asleep in his berth, and on awaking found his wallet, containing all the cash I had sent him, was missing. He was forced to wire me for more. When he finally arrived, looking tanned and handsome and charming as ever, we all had a wonderful time together. The Americans adored him. So English was he in every way, and I was glad I had been able to give him this happy holiday in the United States with me and my husband. For my father's 80th birthday, Bennett and I traveled to England, where Sylvia and Don Witz had organized a birthday party at the Lynx Hotel. For the occasion, I proudly wore a suit tailored in the Johnston tartan of grey-blue and sage-green with a yellow stripe. About forty guests came, and after dinner, at Sylvia's request, I sat at the hotel's upright piano to play Debussy's Claire de Lune. Sylvia told me afterwards that at once all the merry chatter ceased and there was total silence. Those in the public bar, on hearing the first notes, also fell silent, and gradually they trickled out to join our party and listen to Debussy. A most entertaining artist was present, and when he invited us all to go to his studio, Don, Sylvia, my father, and Bennett and I piled into Don's car, and off we went to look at his pictures. The studio was a ramshackle hut in the middle of nowhere with a ladder leading upstairs, climbed with difficulty by my eighty-year-old father, now rather tired after the excitement of his birthday party. The artist produced jam jars and opened a bottle of scotch whiskey. I liked the artist's work, huge, splashy abstracts, and decided one large canvas would look marvelous in our Long Island doll's house, so I bought it. Don agreed to crate it and send it to me in America. "'Which way up should it go?' I asked naively. "'This way,' said my father authoritatively. "'The paint drips run downwards.' It had been a marvellous birthday party. Don, my father's devoted friend, duly drove him home and saw him safely into bed. The following year Sylvia Witz was passing Rosemont one day when she noticed the curtains were still drawn. My father was ill. I happened to be in England at the time, so I immediately telephoned Emmy Tillett 
and most unusually cancelled a concert. My father is in hospital, I explained. But he's not really your father, is he? asked Emmy. Of course he is, I exclaimed. Because I had assumed my mother's maiden name, and to facilitate hotel and travelling had had it made official by deed po, so that it was on my passport, she believed I was illegitimate. My father had cancer of the liver. I was told it might have begun twenty years ago, and that there was now no hope for him. He was moved into a large private room, with a second bed where I could stay and be with him in the hospital till he died. He died a few days later, and was buried next to my mother in the cemetery at Plymouth. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.